Turn in your Bible, please, to Ezekiel chapter 25. Seventeen verses, I'll begin to read at verse 1. Hear God's perfect word. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face towards the sons of Ammon and prophesy against them. Say to the sons of Ammon, Hear the words of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, Because you have said, Aha, against my sanctuary when it was profaned, and against the land of Israel when it was made desolate, against the house of Judah when they went into exile. Therefore, behold, I am going to give you to the sons of the east for possession. They will set their encampment among you, make their dwelling among you. They will eat your fruit and drink your milk. I'll make Rabbah a pasture for camels and the sons of Ammon a resting place for flocks. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, because you've clapped your hands and stamped your feet and rejoiced with all the scorn of your soul against the land of Israel, therefore behold, I will stretch out my hand against you. I will give you for spoil to the nations. I will cut off, I will cut you off from the peoples and make you perish from the lands. I will destroy you. Thus you will know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because Moab and Seir say, Behold, the house of Judah is like all the nations. Therefore, behold, I am going to deprive the flank of Moab of its cities, of its cities which are on its frontiers, the glory of the land, Beth Jeshimoth, Baal Maon, and Kiriathim. Now I'll give it for possession among the sons of Ammon to the sons of the east, so that the sons of Ammon will not be remembered among the nations. Thus I will execute judgment on Moab, and they will know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because Edom has acted against the house of Judah by taking vengeance, has incurred grievous guilt and avenged themselves upon them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will also stretch out my hand against Edom, cut off man and beast from it, I lay it waste from Timon even to Dedan, and they will fall by the sword. I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the hand of my people Israel. Therefore, they will act in Edom according to my anger and according to my wrath. Thus they will know my vengeance, declares the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, because the Philistines have acted in revenge and taken vengeance with scorn of soul to destroy with everlasting enmity. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will stretch out my hand against the Philistines, even cut off all Chetherites and destroy the remnant of the seacoast. I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes, and they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. God's word, let's pray. Almighty God, you are God, and beside you there is no other. And Lord, you in your word have words of comfort, words pleasant, words that we find to be pleasant, and then you have terrible words. You show yourself to be a consuming fire to all those that oppose you. Help us, Lord, those with faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us receive these words against your enemies, those engaged against your Christ and against Christ's church. Help us, Lord God, receive these things and tremble, knowing that you are a three times holy God and that you hate sin and all those found in their sin. And help us see as well that there will always be a church upon the earth to worship you, Jesus Christ, notwithstanding the enemies. You are the one that fights the battle. Help us, 
believe these things and live accordingly. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This is the division, I would argue, um, the first 24 chapters of the book of Ezekiel deal with God's judgment against the household of God. The Apostle Peter says judgment does, in fact, begin with the household of God. And so for 24 chapters, God has been saying to Israel, hyphen, Judah, hyphen, Jerusalem, his people, that all those within his household of faith that are bereft of faith, proved by their habitual unrepentant lives of sin, that they're spiritually dead and they will bear their own judgment. That's chapters 1 through 24. And then we come to chapter 25. Chapter 25 begins an eight-chapter denunciation of God through God's minister, Ezekiel, uh, against the Gentile nations. So chapter 1 through 24, God denounces Israel. Chapter 25 to 32, God is denouncing various, I want to say seven Gentile nations that surround Israel. And God is um, teaching us something that we find the Apostle Paul reiterates in Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2. The scripture tells us salvation comes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. If you read the Great Commission, if you look at Acts chapter 1, 1 through 8, the gospel goes forth from Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth. Jew first, then to the Gentile. Salvation. There's also another principle that we see at work here. 24, chapters 1 through 24, judgment comes to the Jew first within the household of faith, but having no faith proved by a, a life of unrepentant sin. Judgment comes to them, and then after judgment comes to the Jew, judgment will come to the Gentile. Salvation to the Jew first, then the Gentile. Judgment to the Jew first, then the Gentile. If I bring it up to today's context, judgment will come to the church then and those apart from the church. So chapters 1 through 24 are people within the visible household of faith that don't have any faith. This is a Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 4. So it's possible, to, as we've said many times before, it's possible to be in the church, not in Christ. But then what we're looking at in chapter 25 to 32 is those who are found apart from the church, uh, not being found in Christ Jesus, they're going to bear their sin as well. So that's the scheme um, to, to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And what we have here is uh, four oracles, denunciation against four uh, Gentilish nations. You have the people of Ammon, then you have the people of Moab, uh, brothers actually, Ammon and Moab, then Edom, and then the Philistines. I want to say something, since we've moved from, moved from God speaking to Jew and then Gentile, I want to say a few basic things about the classification of Jew or Gentile, and perhaps even more basic than that, just the classification of human beings. Human beings, subsequent to the fall of Adam and Eve, we are very good at dividing, subdividing, classifying, subclassifying, sub-subclassifying. And what do I mean? Black, white, uh, rich, poor, free, slave, learned, uneducated, um, and so on and so on and so on. Fallen mankind has a tremendous capacity uh, to divide. We're not so very good after the fall of uniting, but we do, people do classify themselves variously. Read the end of, um, uh, read the end of the book, uh, Galatians chapter three, barbarian, free, Scythian, slave, Roman, that kind of a thing. 
But regarding the classifications that human beings make uh, amongst uh, one another, let's speak to one classification that the Bible... Can someone see if that door is open or not open? I think we're just... Uh, let some folks in here. They're trying to get into our church. Let them in. Um, I want to speak to one classification that the Bible uses, which is Jew or Gentile. So the scripture does actually use classifications of people, Jew or Gentile. And in the land of my birth, in New England, in the town that I lived for most of my life, maybe there were 20% Jewish folks. And you don't oftentimes hear now the classification of Gentile. You don't, ordinarily don't hear people use the term Gentile. Um, in the, the town I grew up in, I heard that term Gentile often. And as a pejorative, the people would use the in where I lived, they would use Yiddish, which is German and Hebrew. They, you were you were called the Goy. Goy is singular, and plural is Goyim. And so a Jew would call a Gentile, like my roommate who was Jewish, would joke with me and say, "You're the Goy," and uh, or the Goyim, and th- that means nations. And so when we look at a Gentile, Gentile literally means in Hebrew the nations, and and. And what we're looking at is the denunciation of various nations. And what a Gentile is specifically, and I know this is going to not appear like rocket science, it's a non-Jew. So you have two classes of people here in the Old Testament. You have Jews and Gentiles, and the Gentile is just a non-Jew. So Jews and non-Jews. Now I do want to speak a little bit, because we're going to go from judging Jews to judging Gentiles. I want to speak to a little bit about the classification of Jew and Gentile. God's the one that makes the, the, the classification. So we can't say, unlike some of the things that we do, rich, poor, black, white, all these things, and usually we uh, 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 apply some kind of hierarchy to, um, of quality to those things, which is man, and shockingly, usually who and what we are arrives at the top. But when we're looking at the Jew-Gentile distinction that God makes, I want to I point out something that it's not a racial distinction. Uh, th- this is not a racial distinction of Jew and uh, Gentile. And it doesn't imply when we use, or God uses the Jew-Gentile distinction, it doesn't imply any inherent moral um, goodness on the part of the Jew or any I- inherent moral badness on the part of the Gentile. All human beings, Jews and Gentiles, apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ, apart from being united to God in Christ, all human beings morally are, are in the same boat. Uh, read Romans 3, 8 through 19. Read Romans 6, 23. Um, look around. Apart from salvation in Jesus Christ, no one seeks God. No one. No one. This is Paul's argument in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. He says, does the Jew have an advantage? Yes, they have the Bible. Yes, they have the oracles and the ordinances of God for gathering the elect into perfecting them until the day of Christ. Yes. But unless they're applied effectually by the Holy Spirit, unless a person has true faith, Jew and Gentile are alike. (laughs) Morally, spiritually, religiously, they're dead in their sins, dead in their trespasses. So when we're using that distinction, one, it's not racial, and it doesn't show any inherent moral goodness or badness on Jew versus Gentile. So the distinction that God makes with Jew and Gentile is a religious distinction. And it's one that God applies. God will say to the Jew, I chose the Jew, and then everyone else I passed over. 
And this is why intermarriage is wrong. Again, intermarriage, like I have an interracial marriage. But it, it's not that the different melanin in skin is necessarily, is not sinful. It's a religious distinction. God says, I don't want my people, my religious people, intermarrying with those people who are not religiously my people. It has nothing to do with the melanin, nothing to do with the economic status, none of it. It's a religious distinction. And so again, I just want us to get some of the distinctions that we find God denounces unbelieving Jews for 24 chapters in Ezekiel. And now chapter 25 to 32, he's going to denounce unbelieving Gentiles who are found apart from the household of faith. But it is helpful that we understand what God is saying when he makes that Jew-Gentile distinction. I said that God himself chose the Jews out of all of the peoples of the earth. I'm going to read for us Deuteronomy chapter 7. Within this chapter, I want to say it's this chapter, maybe chapter 6, I forget which. No, I think it's chapter 7. It contains what even Jews this day will call the great Shema. Shema in Hebrew means just hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, he quotes the Shema. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. You should only worship God. Within that chapter, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, this is where God says to Israel, I picked you. And I didn't pick anyone else. Deuteronomy 7, 6, he says to Israel, God says to Israel through Moses, You are holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possessions out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now God says, I picked you out of all the people of the earth. And now God is going to tell his people why he chose them and not other people. Remember what I said. There's no inherent moral goodness to the people of the Jews. The only goodness that they have is going to be both imputed to them and infused in them by grace, both in their justification and their sanctification. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest, but because the Lord God loved you and kept an oath which he swore to the forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, uh, king of Egypt. Now this is going to be significant when we come to God's rebuke in his promise of judgment against these four Gentile nations, where these folks come from, who their earthly progenitors are. Who is the earthly progenitor of the Hebrew people? Who's the human being that God uses to be, as it were, the father of the Jews? His father Abraham. If you know your Bible, and I hope you know your Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, and this is a plug for the Old Testament. Most of us as Christians, we know our, our New Testament way better than we old, our, 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 know our um, uh, Old Testament. The Old Testament is two-thirds of the Bible. St. Augustine would say something like, uh, in the Old Testament, you have the New Testament in the seed form. In the New Testament, you have the, the, the Old Testament uh, in full bloom. So th- there's a harmonious unity. So we really should know both testaments. Uh, the first, the the first two thirds of the Bible is the promise of Christ coming in type and shadow, and then from Matthew on to the end of uh, Revelation, it's Christ come in in substance. But when you uh, know your Bible, I'm thinking of Genesis chapter 11. God calls a father Abraham to Himself, and He calls him away from who was his father Terah and uh, his grandfather. They were pagans. Uh, Abraham was a pagan. You read the book of Judges. He called out Abraham 
in his family from worshiping false gods, idols from across the river. So he was a heathen. He was a pagan. And God called Abraham, and I understand he was called Abram, but I always just think Abraham. He called Abraham. He gave him saving faith. Read uh, read, uh, um, uh, Galatians chapter 3 and and Genesis chapter 15. God gifted to Father Abraham faith. He believed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Galatians, round about uh, 3 verses uh, 6 through 10. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. And the scripture tells us that through this one man, he would become essentially the physical progenitor of the Jews. Read Romans chapter 9. So he's going to be the progenitor, the earthly father, as it were, of the physical people of the Jews. And then later, as it comes to faith, he is going to become the father of the faithful. This is the end of Galatians chapter 3. Everyone with faith in the promised seed that comes through the loins of Abraham uh, will be a true child of Abraham. So he's both a progenitor of the physical household of faith and then he is a progenitor of what I would call the Israel of God. You know what I mean when I say the Israel of God. In the Old Testament, the people of God primarily were found in the Jews. You had a smattering of uh, who was the fellow, the uh, Syrian, a name in the Syrian uh, 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 military man. You have a smattering of Gentile inclusion. But with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament epoch, the church is spread to the four corners. And we are called the Israel of God. So Gentiles who believe in, in Jesus Christ, we are now called the Israel of God, Galatians chapter uh, 6. So he's Father Abraham is a father to the household of faith and to the household of those with true uh, faith. Now, to be separate from the Jews, and this is why I had our brother read uh, uh, um, paragraph 2, chapter 25 of our confession. I was raised Roman Catholic, and the Roman Catholic Church will say something like this, Apart from the church, and they mean the Roman Catholic Church, there's no possibility, ordinary possibility of salvation. And when I came to faith in Jesus Christ, when God gave me faith and opened my blind eyes, and I became a born-again Christian at 26, anything that even sounded like Catholicism, I immediately rejected it. I wouldn't even pray the Lord's Prayer in a liturgy like we do every Sunday because I thought it was too Catholic-y. And when I first heard a Protestant say what our brother read, apart from the church, there's no ordinary possibility of salvation. As a, as a Protestant, I thought, no, that's, no, that's the church I left. That's the church. We don't believe that because we're not that. We're, we're, we're Protestants. We're sola scriptura. We're Bible people. We don't believe apart from the church, Protestant church, of, of which there's, what, 50,000 denominations usually and sub-denominations and... We don't really believe, apart from the church, there's no ordinary salvation. Yeah, we do. Actually, we do. Is this teaching that the church saves? No. All we're acknowledging is this. What are the means that God uses to call sinners to himself? Just think of the means. What, what, is, what is the great means that God uses to take an unsaved person and make him a saved person? Because he does use means. The Bible. He uses the word of God. He uses the law of God. He uses the gospel of God. What entity has the Bible, as it were, the church? So all we're acknowledging is, apart from the church coming with a Bible, saying the wages of sin is death, but the free offer of God is eternal life, there's no salvation. My wife, I've mentioned a bunch of times, she's from way high up in India, very near Nepal. They have Hindus and they have Muslims. And if you don't have a man or a woman with a Bible coming, usually sent from some church, telling you you're a sinner and Christ is a savior, you have Hindus and you have Muslims. 
So we believe to be apart from God's people is essentially to be apart from salvation. And now, all that to say, we come here. God is denouncing these, these nations. You have Ammon, you have Moab, and their, their brothers, or, or, or descendants from brothers. You have Edom, you have the Philistines. So these four nations, we're going to get around to Egypt, and so on. These people don't have the law of God. These people do not have the gospel of God, not even in the old epoch. Even in the old epoch, they had Christ crucified in type and shadow. That's what the priesthood was all about. That's what the temple, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, read the book of Hebrews. It's all pointing forward to Christ crucified. They didn't have that. And so since they didn't have Christ crucified, what does that make them? Every one of them. They're unbelievers. So we just took 24 chapters and God said to the household of faith, there's a whole boatload of you Jews that say you believe and don't and you're going to get judgment. And now when God comes here from 25 to 32, he says to these Gentiles, you're getting judgment. You're getting judgment because they're found in their sin. They, they have no faith in the sin bearer, Jesus Christ. They're outside of the visible household of faith. Does that make sense? So when we're looking at the judgment that God gives them, it's not that intrinsically or inherently they're worse than the Jews. They just are found in their sin. They, they, they are not found in Christ. On the last day, we're, only, we're either going to be found in the first Adam or the second Adam. And these people are being found in the second Adam, if that makes any sense. So they're outside the visible household of faith. So you're either, and in, in for our discussion tonight, you're either a friend of God, you're in the household of God, you're a child of God, both externally, but in order to, to go to heaven, you must be vitally, truly, savingly joined to God in, in Christ, have a true saving faith. So you're either a friend of God or a child of God. And what this chapter represents is God's denunciation against what I would call the enemies of God. We're moderns, and so we're not used to, maybe in this church, which keeps us manageably uh, small, we're used to hearing these things, but it's not common in a Christian church to hear friends of God, children of God, enemies of God, those who love God in Christ and those who hate God in Christ, Th those who are in the narrow road, those who are going to heaven and those who are on the broad road going to hell. I know that that's not, it's not considered genteel, enlightened, any of those things. Sometimes it's even considered contrascriptural, which itself it's contrascriptural. If you're not a child of God, you're an enemy of God. If you're not a child of light, you're a child of darkness. Read the book of Colossians. Read the book of Ephesians. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. There's no middle ground. So you have friends of God, enemies of God. And what the enemies of God will receive is what this passage represents. If you look at, every, at the end of every one of those oracles, and they will know that I am the Lord, and they will know that I am the Lord, and they will know that I am the Lord, and they will know that I am the Lord. Everyone. So the way that we are trained to think in the modern church is, oh, good, good, they're going to know the Lord. But actually, it's not good. There is a saving knowing of the Lord by which we cry, Abba, Father. And then there's a non-salvific way of knowing he's the Lord, which is what? Philippians 2, 1 through 11, as I prayed it, every knee will bend. And they're going to get down on their knees. And every tongue, every tongue, is going to confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Mahatma Gandhi, all of these people will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. 
and you will know that I am the Lord. But it won't be saving. The ones who know God in Christ will hear, come. And what these people represent are the people that don't know God in Christ, and they will hear, depart. This is a, this is a judgment passage. But this is a sovereign judgment passage against those who are found apart from the household of faith in their sin. So you're either a child or you're an enemy. You're either a child of darkness or you're a child of light. And these people are enemies of God's people. Now, when I say that, when you live in a state of peace and prosperity, like we would, most of us here, I would say, are in a state of peace and prosperity. And you could argue, well, gas is a, well, now they're giving away gas because what is it, six, uh, three, three, uh, three eighty-five. It's like it's like free now, but after the midterms, it will probably be up, be up to about fifteen bucks. So you could argue that things are, are are a little difficult. But beloved, if the church, the visible church, had real enemies, like marches off and put us in a gulag enemy, and God were to send a prophet and say, say saying essentially this. I know who your enemies are. They're the ones enslaving you. I'm going to judge them. What would that represent for the people of God? What would that represent for the people of God? If you were a slave in this country and you heard that people were coming to liberate you from slavery and they liberated you, what would you think? God answered our prayers. God knows. God cares. God sustains. That's this. So the reason we recoil at that idea of God's friends, God's children, God's enemies, and God will put down his enemies is because we don't see the danger. We're not in the crucible. But the only thing that we would need to change our view of these things is to be put in a crucible. Does that make sense? So if I took away all the retirement, all the second car, all the third car, all the clothes, and and these people are being taken away into Babylonian captivity naked, And then God comes along and says, I'm going to put down all your enemies. What would the response of faith be? Thank you, God. You care. So even though this is a frightening passage to the Gentiles, to the believers within the household of faith, the Jews, this is a super comforting passage. Will the world, the the flesh, and the devil snatch any Christian here away from King Christ? Will. Will. Will the gates of hell prevail against the church of Jesus? No. Why? Because of this. And they will know that I am the Lord, and they will know that I am the Lord, and they will know that I am the Lord. Judgment passage, but it's meant to uh, warn the Gentiles, and it's meant to comfort the believers within the household of faith. So that's what this represents, uh, a denunciation against the enemies of uh, God. And when I say the enemies of God... There's a fancy word that I use all the time, which comes from uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 7. The fancy word is enmity. Enmity is a fancy word for hatred or warfare. Hatred or warfare. God says to these four nations, I'm going to put you down, I'm going to put you down, I'm going to put you down. And he's going to put them down for these reasons. They hate his people. And behind the hatred of his people is what? Why do people hate Christians so much? Why do unbelievers hate Christians so much? And I know what they're going to say. Y'all are hypocrites. Y'all are so narrow-minded. Y'all are this. Y'all are that. Blah, 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 blah. It's none of that. It's none of that. 
the reason the unbeliever hates the Christian so much is because they hate Christ. The reason the enemies of God hate the people of God is because they hate God. You see what's going on. The Moabites hate God. The Edomites hate God. The Philistines hate God. Remember when they took the ark? The Philistines took the ark. They had a god, Dagon. Remember that? And every morning they'd wake up and what happened to old Dagon? He's flat laying on his face with his head chopped off, his torso chopped off, his hands and his arms chopped off. And God is saying to them, your God is not over me. I am over your God. And so when we're looking at this, this is the justice of God. And the enmity of the the enemies is directed against the people of God, but ultimately it, it flows out of spiritual hatred of God. Unless we're converted by the Holy Spirit, we are God-haters, every one of us. It doesn't matter if you were raised Episcopalian, Methodist, it doesn't matter. Unless we're converted, the Bible says that we are God-haters, and the hatred comes out in our hatred against um, the people of God. In, In what we see in this particular passage is the hatred of these enemies against the people of God takes various forms. And when you look at the children of Ammon and then Moab, it it takes the form of mockery. And then when you look at the children of Edom, it takes the form of outright violence. People express their hatred of God and of God's people, Christ of Christ's people, variously, depending upon the circumstances, depending upon the constitution of the enemy or the opponent. Uh, And what we we see is some will be uh, verbal, it will be malicious, they're laughing at the destruction of the temple and laughing at the enslaving of God's people. And then the others is their outright plundering uh, the people of God. So it's expressed variously. Now what I want to do, maybe for like eight minutes to the end of the sermon, I want to just skim through the three things that we find in each of these four oracles. You have God saying the recognition of the enemy, as we've said, you have the sons of Ammon, the sons of Moab, and so on. God says, this is an enemy of yours and an enemy of mine, that he knows who his enemies are. Remember, this is the warning to the Gentile, but it's the comfort. I know it sounds strange because we're not used to hearing it. It's the comfort to the believer, for the believer to be told by our Lord, I know who your enemies are, and they're your enemies because they're my enemies, and I know. One of the hard things that we face as people living in a fallen world is when we suffer oppression, persecution, anything like that, when we think there's no justice, no one in charge knows. Someone in charge says he knows, and that's God. So you see the recognition of the enemy, the acknowledgement, and then you see the form of opposition, whether it's verbal, malicious, and uh, outright murder, those kind of things. And then the third thing that you see within each oracle is the recompense of God. What God says he will do to the people that abuse his people. And you'll see this, essentially. There are two things that he says he'll do. He's going to make them slaves, and then he'll kill them. Um, He'll destroy them. He'll enslave them, or he'll destroy them. There's a principle in Scripture. It's a principle of justice. It's lex talionis. It's an eye for eye justice, perfect, perfect justice. If you mock the people of God for being a slave, you're going to be a slave. If you mock the people of God for being killed by the Babylonians, 
you're going to be killed by the Babylonians. Again, this is, this is what the Bible is teaching. I'm not making it up, I promise. I know massive portions of the, 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 the Christian church ministers, they're probably smarter than I am, would never touch this book. There's a reason for that. But they're withhold, the Bible says the, even these things are written for our instruction. So I dare not pass over these things, though they're not palatable to the modern um, uh, tastes. So the first one is Amon. Do you know where this fellow comes from or these people come from? Uh, they, they come from their, their, their progenitor or their father is Lot. Do you know where Lot comes from? Who's Lot's uncle? Abraham. These people, these enemies of God that are mocking the downfall of God's people came out of the loins of Abraham. And Abraham had a younger brother. I think his name was Haran. And Haran had this boy, Lot. Lot ends up, you remember, after God liberates, frees Lot and his wife and his two daughters. Do you remember this? Was it Genesis 19? He frees them or liberates them from what city? Sodom. It's a picture of hell. It is a picture of the final judgment. He saves them from hell. And as he leaves, the wife looks back and then Peter uses her as an example in the book of Luke. Uh, Luke, Remember Lot's wife. J.C. Ryle has an interesting sermon on that. Remember Lot's wife. But then he leaves with his two daughters, an older daughter and a younger daughter, just after he was saved from being burned alive. What's the first thing that Father Lot does? He gets drunk. What other guy gets off of being freed from a massive worldwide judgment? And the first thing he does when he gets off the boat is he gets drunk and he lays around with no pants on. Read Genesis chapter 9. Noah, the first thing he does after he gets off the ark, one of the first things is he plants a vineyard and gets drunk. The first thing that Lot does after being saved by divine kindness is he gets drunk. And his older daughter plies him with drink and she becomes impregnated. She conceives a child through her father. And that first boy is going to be Moab. And then the younger girl, she does the same thing. She gets Lot drunk. And then she lies with the father. She conceives a second child. That boy's name is Amon. So Amon and Moab are children of incest. So it's, it's a, it's a, if you didn't have a Bible, if you didn't have a Bible, you would never believe it. And if, if you didn't know that I think it's Peter's epistle, epistle calls Lot, what does the Bible call Lot? Righteous Lot. Righteous Lot. He just got drunk and conceived his own... He's the father of his own grandchildren. I think there's a country song like that. The father of his own grandchildren. That, that's this. The only reason that Lot could be righteous is he have, has forward-looking faith in Christ Jesus. Otherwise, he could never be considered righteous. You wouldn't think that he would be in heaven. But when we come to that, that's where Amon comes from. And I'm going to read that. Genesis 19.36. Should I, will I read the dirty, the nasty part? No. Third, verse 36. Thus the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son, called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites. As for the younger, she bore a son. She called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the sons of Amon to this day. Ben-Ami means son of my people, son of my kinsmen, my nearest kinsmen. The worst kind of incest. A father and a daughter. And these people eventually became awful enemies 
of God's people. They helped hire Balaam, the prophet Balaam, with the king of, of Moab, Balak, to curse the people of God. Th- these are them. And God says, I, I know your enemies, and these people have been your enemies. And, and the sin that they've committed against God and God's people is they're clapping their hands and they're stamping their feet going, aha, aha, at what? At the Babylonian captivity. I've often thought, when I was in the Catholic Church during a specific time in the year, that we would do something antiphonally. The, the church people would take the place of the Jews um, being led along by the, the, the Pharisees, and the, the priest would take the part of, um, uh, of uh, Pontius Pilate. And, and, and we would say, crucify, crucify. And then he would say, why? What has he done? And the church would go, crucify, crucify. Even as I wasn't a, a Christian, it would bring me to tears. I almost couldn't even say it. Crucify, crucify. Have you ever thought when Christ was on a cross, the people were, were mocking? They were, it was a joke. Let's get a glass of Let's give him some wine to see if Elijah comes down. Get down from the cross. We'll believe in you. Would you ever look at a human being being crucified and make a joke out of it? They did. It's satanic. To watch people being put in slavery and go, this is the happiest day of my life. They're profaning this, the, the temple. They're taking the people of God away into slavery. This is great. It's satanic. It's satanic. Most of us would argue we would never mock Jesus. We would never mock these people. Beloved, apart from grace, we would. Apart from grace, we would be the people saying, crucify, crucify. They are rejoicing at the enslavement of God's people, at the the profanation of God's temple, and at the death of God's people. And they're mocking. It's along the lines of, oh, so Jehovah, your God, he's the great I am, the independent one, the one that has no limitations. Oh, really? Looks like you're going away to slavery. Looks like you're going to be worshiping pagan gods in Babylon. And God says, because you have done this, I'm going to have the sons of the east, the Babylonians, they're taking you away into slavery. Because you have done this, Lex Talionis, you're going to die. Again, we want our view of God, of Christ, of heaven, hell, of truth to be Bible, really Bible, really Bible. This is the God of the Bible, not the God. When I was in AA, we would always say the God of your understanding, not the God of your understanding. That's not the God who takes you to heaven. The God of the Bible. The God of the Bible says, when you mock my people and you rejoice that my temple is destroyed, you will pay with it. You will pay. Then he goes on to Moab. Again, this is the older brother. Moab means son of my father. Of my father. Again, it's just, imagine naming your kid incest. This is incest one and incest two. And the Moabites were awful enemies. Again, I mentioned the the king Balak, the Moabite king, marries, uh, hires Balaam to curse the people of God. And you remember, they couldn't curse the people of God. And I mentioned this to a brother this morning. Balaam was in it for the money, and he wanted to curse God's people, but he couldn't. So you know what he did? He said, well, you can't curse them, but you can corrupt the people of God. You remember what the council was? It's Numbers 11 through 15. Remember what it was? What you do is this. We can't curse them. Here's how to corrupt them. Get your Moabite women, the best-looking women, Get the best-looking ones. Get them to marry the, the Hebrew men. And what happens? Oh, in about 30 minutes, those men are going to be worshiping Moabite gods. And you know what the children? They won't even be able to speak the language of Ju- Judah. They're going to be bound down to sticks and stones. 
the God of Moloch and not the God of Jehovah. And that's exactly what happened. And God says, you're going to pay. And then he comes to Edom. Where does Edom come from? Just think. The first two fellows come ultimately through the loins of Abraham. Where does Edom? Is it Jacob? Jacob, I've loved. Esau, I've hated. They come from Isaac and Rebekah. Am I right with that? I think I'm right with that. So, I think I'm right. I don't want to misspeak. Yeah, Isaac and Rebekah. And Isaac comes from Abraham, Isaac, Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. And with the Edomites, the, the, the Edomites are come from Esau. Esau, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Esau is the prototypical, we don't often use this word, reprobate. He's the prototypical person. He's an unbeliever. Prototypical. And the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that Esau was what? He was a something, something man. Do you know what he was? Even though he had religious privilege being attached ultimately through the line of the patriarchs, he had degenerated to becoming this Gentilish nation. He was a godless and immoral man. And he showed that he was godless by his immorality. And he was constantly plaguing the people of God. And he attacked, Edom attacked the people of God when they were coming out of slavery. And God says to them, you are taking your vengeance on my people. I'll take my vengeance on you. And then finally, with the Philistines, if you read the book of Judges, those are the enemies during the time of King David. Um, God says to them as well, you've hated me, you've hated my people, and you will know that I am God. I sometimes have been second-guessing myself preaching through this, this particular series because it is so heavy and it's so antithetical to the way that we ordinarily think. Beloved, we, we really do need to think God's thoughts after him. We really do need the word of God to really be our rule for faith and practice, really rule for faith and practice. If the Lord were to send real persecution on the church the better part of the church is not ready we're just not ready cafe latte skits in the church they're not preparing us for they're just not and god is telling us he has his children he has those who hate his children and he's telling his enemies there's coming a day as you've hated my children as you've hated me, there's coming a day when you will know. And that day, beloved, is judgment day. And even for us as believers, there's no more condemnation for those who are found in Jesus. Romans chapter 8, no more condemnation. But it is helpful for us, beloved, as believers, to live our lives here in recognition that someday we will stand before King Christ. Every believer will give an account of our lives. And this is both a motivation for us to take our comfort in Christ, that the enemies won't prevail, and as well a motivation for us to live a radically separate life. We should live a holy life rather than a Gentile-ish life. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.